It's Friday, and we are working for Crusoe. Sam Park and John Ramey with you on Friday, October 20th, 2023, covering the week's biggest stories in economic and international news. United Auto Workers President Sean Fain says the strike will go on. He is holding out for a better deal from the big three. There had been reports earlier this week that General Motors in particular was giving a lot of ground, but the strike will go on, although he did not announce in a speech today that the strike would expand. So they're just holding pat, but they are remaining on strike. Elections in Poland and the hard right ruling party wins a plurality, the most votes, but it looks like they will not be able to form a coalition government. So the left and the center look well positioned to take over the government in Poland. And we will have the latest in the ongoing calamity in the Middle East with regard to the war between Hamas and Israel, new developments, and also the implications for who's getting on which side. It looks very different with the West and Europe mostly lining up with Israel, and then the global South, Russia and China not commenting. Sam Park, let's start with your favorite character on uh, working for Crusoe, United Auto Workers President Sean Fain, who took to Facebook Live, uh, the Working Man's Network, and uh, addressed his membership about what is going to happen next in the strike. Yes, actually, mainly what he did was to recap what had gone on so far. This was by far the most detailed presentation that President Fain has given throughout the strike. And uh, viewers who would like to find out more about what he said today, I would highly encourage them to go onto the UAW YouTube channel and they can see uh, he went live on YouTube actually at the same time as he was on Facebook. But uh, it's archived on their YouTube channel. The bulk of his presentation consisted of mainly a PowerPoint presentation. And there were about a half a dozen or so slides, each of which corresponded to a set of demands of the UAW. There was a slide for base pay. There was a slide for retirement benefits. There was a slide for cost of living adjustments or COLA, as it's known in the jargon. In each one of these slides, there was a column. That is, there were three columns on each slide, one for each of the big three. And so he he could explain to all the members exactly where negotiations stand in every category. Uh, with each member of the big three. And it became clear very quickly that in just about every category, there are discrepancies amongst the uh, offers uh, that have been given to the UAW by the big three thus far. I don't want to go into a whole lot of detail about this. Uh, I would say that the general tone, however, that uh, Fain had throughout the presentation really supported the impression that I was starting to get last week that he might be feeling some pressure from the membership to bring the strike to an end. After all, nobody wants to be on strike. And the tactics that he's employed of standing up the strike gradually have been very effective, but they have the side effect that all the UAW members who are not yet on strike have to sit there wondering if they're going to be next to have to walk off the job and take reduced pay out of the strike fund instead of full pay for working. Uh, And so 
I really thought that Fane ha- was feeling some pressure. He used rhetoric like, don't let them scare you, things like this. Uh, and again, I, got, I don't want to go too far into detail with it, but one thing he did say towards the end of the presentation was that it's at the end of negotiation processes that tactics start to get more hardball. And he talked about how the heads of the big three have been making public addresses about the strike and wanting to bring the strike to an end. And he addressed those comments, you know, to offer a counterpoint. What he said seemed to jive with some of the independent commentary I've seen that seems to think that the strike might be entering or nearing at least uh, its final stages, which would be good news for everybody, I think. The strike began on September 15th, so we are over a month into the United Auto Workers' unprecedented strike simultaneously against all three uh, U.S. automakers, and they are, of course, Ford, General Motors, and the artist formerly known as Chrysler, now parent company called Stellantis. Correct. The the report I read before Fain um, took to YouTube and Facebook Live came from the Associated Press about a, a prepared statement that GM put out saying it made an offer earlier today with substantial movement in all key areas, quote, and a 23% increase over the existing hourly wage and a bunch of other, you know, talking points that General Motors would want the public to think they're being very fair in covering Fain's subsequent address to the membership. The Associated Press said that he spoke in uh, characteristic sharp tones. So I don't know if that jives with how you found the address. And I thought that was just an interesting um, editorial comment by the AP. Well, his his tone, I think, it has remained consistent throughout. He does. That's just the way he, he speaks. But again, he went into much more detail about what they've achieved so far than he has uh, in any of his previous addresses. And I mean a lot more detail. This whole PowerPoint slide, that was new. He'd never done that before. So I have a question about the PowerPoint and about how he's comparing with what each of the big three is offering in specific areas. Is his explicit goal to get the same deal for his workers from all three? I think so, yes. Now, he, he hasn't said so, but he seemed okay. to imply that very strongly. In okay, that's, that was my question because it is being implied, but he, to your knowledge and to my knowledge, he has not explicitly said that. It would that's make right. sense. It would make sense. Well, the thing is, this, as we've said before, this is an unprecedented tactic in strikes or in automotive strikes anyway, where he's striking all three. That is, the union is striking all three major automakers at the same time. And uh, as we've discussed in previous episodes, uh, in all of the earlier strike actions, the UAW would strike one company, reach an agreement with them, and the other two companies would sort of seemingly out of your custom, right? Just fall in line with with whatever agreement had been reached by the the one that had been struck. Uh, And so even if the strike is nearing its end, there's going to be some amount of work to be done to reconcile all the competing offers that the the, uh, big three have come up with so far. To Poland, where the Poles went to the Poles on Sunday, October 15th. So six days ago, per the Polish constitution, you know, many countries, Sam, vote on weekends instead of on Tuesdays when it might in fact be easier for people to vote. Imagine that. Yes. Well, to be fair, we have moved a lot towards mail-in voting. 
right? To make things more convenient for our citizens. But yes, you're right. The greatest country on earth could still actually make it more convenient. Yes, I agree. I I don't have any uh, argument against that. All right. So the polls went to the polls and I have said it twice and I won't do it again, but you can do it again, Sam. Seats I'm going to save that up. Yeah. Seats in both the lower house and the Senate. So it's bicameral in Poland. Um, And the lower house, the body has a name S E J M. I am not sure how to pronounce that. Have you heard in reports how to pronounce that? I have not. Okay. I would well, imagine anyway, same, but I don't. Same would be my, yeah. uh, again, I'm not a Polish uh, literary scholar or uh, language scholar, but yes, the same in the Senate were uh, both had seats contested. So here's the deal. The uh, ruling party, the law and justice party, won 35% of the vote. That's the biggest plurality, but they're not going to be able to make a coalition because the opposition, the civic coalition, the third way, and the left combined for 54% of the vote, and it looks like that's going to be the three components of the coalition. Yes, but as in many European-style parliamentary systems, the plurality winner gets the first crack at trying to form a government. So that's still where we are now. Uh, And so uh, the expectation is that law and justice will fail to do so because their putative coalition partners still don't add up to a majority for that possible coalition. Whereas, as you've mentioned, the uh, civic coalition and their two possible coalition partners can easily get to a majority in parliament. Right. The snag for the would-be coalition, civic coalition, third way, and the left, is that the sympathies of the Polish president, the current president, Duda, lie with the far-right Law and Justice Party? Yes, I, mean, ruling... I think he was formerly a member of the party, if I'm not yeah. mistaken. And they've been the ruling party since 2015, and the Law and Justice Party in Poland has taken Poland to as close as we might get without actually calling it an illiberal democracy, like we might term Turkey. Or, or as as or Victor Hungary. Orban, uh, yeah. so he, call, he calls Hungary under his rule an illiberal democracy. He, right. in fact, uses that term. And law and justice has brought Poland in that direction. They have all but made abortion illegal there. There are very restrictive laws uh, regarding the LGBTQ community That's and right. just non-Christian citizens in Poland. They have been very anti-immigrant, the Law and Justice Party in their stance. So it is, I guess, a break for the good guys that they did not have a resounding victory, even though they got uh, an over or they got the largest plurality with uh, 35 percent of the vote. One other stat we hear a lot about the reporting in this election for Poland was the turnout above 74 percent, the biggest turnout since the fall of communist rule in Poland in 1989. That's right. Uh, And that, I think, uh, really quickened the hearts of people on the pro-democracy side, right? Was that especially in the wake of the elections in Slovakia a few weeks ago, which we've discussed, right? What Slovakia is a very small country, but it's right next door to Poland. uh, And like Poland, shares a border with Ukraine, has had the same sorts of disputes over grain exports, that uh, that Poland is having on a much larger scale, of course, because Poland's a much larger country and has an enormous and very politically influential agricultural sector. 
Uh, and so there was a great fear among, especially in the European Union, that uh, Poland might continue along the same lines uh, that Slovakia had traveled. Slovakia is a slightly different case because the, the populist nationalist candidate there was not the incumbent, right? In this case, it was the more pro-European part, you know, more liberal party that defeated the incumbent populist nationalist party. So the In, momentum was sort of opposite. Right. Um, names to keep track of here. So you have Duda, the Polish president, yes, who is sympathetic to the populist nationalist law and justice party that has been ruling Poland since 2015. You have Donald Tusk. He is in charge of that civic coalition with the other two uh, parties that could form the coalition. They seem to have. And civic coalition would be far and away the largest party in that coalition. It were it to be to take the reins of the government. Along with the left and the third way. Exactly. And, and then the uh, third name you will hear is the prime minister, Morawiecki. Yes. Right? He has been the prime minister of the ruling law and justice party since 2015. And this is his government that has really used media manipulation to um, engineer that climate of threat and hostility towards immigrants that we talked about, non-Christians. Yes. In fact, Morawiecki's father claimed in 2018 that Polish Jews entered the Warsaw ghetto voluntarily uh, and implied they had sympathy for Germans. I mean, just really kind of despicable stuff from the party that's been in charge of Poland since 2015. That's correct. You think about kind of where this watermark, high or low watermark, however you want to term it, comes internationally with populism we've certainly dealt with it in the united states nationalist populism but it does line up a lot with how it kind of happened over here i mean and that's i think that the why the size of relief all across europe really have been audible right people were really afraid that that things would would go again in the populist nationalist direction and this was not just a record turnout but a very bitter and hard-fought campaign. Uh, Civic coalition and law and justice were really poles apart. And they, the rhetoric was just very heated all the way through. Uh, And there was, uh, for instance, if we look at Donald Tusk, he'd already been prime minister under a previous government. His party was then known as Civic Platform. I'm not sure exactly if they've changed it, or if there's been a new translation style sure. that they've requested or has been adopted. But anyway, it's essentially the same party. Uh, and he's nowhere near as old as Joe Biden, but there was the same sort of dynamic involved. It's like, really? This is the only guy you can get? You know, I mean, don't you have anybody else in your party? You had to go with the guy who's already been prime minister, uh, but he uh, wasn't prime minister for nothing, right? He's an effective candidate. Uh, and he did he did a very good job uh, in rallying his voters to to the polls. Oh, very good, Sam. Uh, just to zoom out a little bit more, Poland as a nationality goes back centuries, right? The language, the culture, but as a modern state, it's only really carved out after 
the end of the First World War, and they have been sitting astride all the turbulent history of Europe since then. Yeah, they, so we, we discussed this in a previous episode, actually, yeah. right? That the different historical uh, significances that Poland's had down through the years, all of them very large. I mean, they're, they're right in the hot seat, right? They're yeah. between Germany and Russia. And, you know, it's like we did talk about Slovakia, but it is like a big Slovakia. You don't want the country right next door to a belligerent authoritarian Russia becoming less liberal, less democratic. So That's right. And up until a few months ago, they were, as we mentioned, some of the most stalwart supporters of the of Ukraine in their war against Russia, uh, the, the aggression, the naked uh, genocidal aggression that the Russians have been inflicting on Ukraine until Russia pulled out of the grain deal and suddenly all this Ukrainian grain started traveling overland through Poland and Slovakia and other you know neighboring uh, European states. And suddenly law and justice turned on a dime. Uh, I mean, it was so abrupt because, as I say, the agricultural sector, as in many countries, not just Poland, right, is very influential. Uh, Poland has enormous amount of farmers and or farmland, I should say. So explain that a little bit more. What I understand you're saying is all of a sudden Ukrainian grain starts pouring, pouring into Poland, devaluing a critical component of their domestic economy. That's right. And a critical uh, a critical segment of the law and justice electorate. That right. law and justice really didn't have any choice but to, you know, suddenly start becoming almost virulently anti-Ukrainian just to mollify uh, their agricultural base voters. Uh, and this, I think, might, and, you know, I'll leave this to people who know more about Polish politics than I do, but this might have actually alienated them amongst more sort of what we would call swing voters, right? Just like, oh, really, suddenly... You know, one minute you're super pro-Ukrainian and suddenly they're the worst, right? Uh, uh, this just doesn't feel right. There was also the scandal, which I think we've discussed briefly about. Yeah, I wanted you to bring that up. Policies, right. So these uh, guys are stalwart anti-immigrants, nasty language, and it turns out uh, they're actually selling visas under the table. Yes, in Asian and African countries, their consular officials were selling visas to. Uh, nationals of those countries uh, to allow them entry into Poland. And of course, Poland is a member, of, I believe, of the Schengen Agreement, that which allows travel across the European Union, not the entire Union, but you know most of the countries of the Union. So if you can get into one of the Schengen countries, you can travel anywhere in the European Union. And so the Poles figure, well, we can, you know, or at least the corrupt consular officials figure it's fine we'll make some money and these people probably won't stay in poland anyway they'd just as soon you know we're right next door to germany they'd much rather go to germany which is a much more prosperous country they're not probably not going to stick around in poland of course some of them actually did uh because you know compared depending on what what country you're from poland is an economic paradise you know for some people depend again depending on your own national origin and the rank hypocrisy of the Law and Justice Party, which is hardline anti-immigrant, and yes. then it's their own diplomats who are basically being bribed for visas. Yes, but I don't know exactly how much of an impact that particular issue had on the polling results. 
I'm, you know, we, I, I expect we might find out, but this is still a live ball, as you say, right? Now, again, I don't want to be too hard on Andre Duda. In any European-style parliamentary system, the plurality party basically automatically gets, you know, the first crack at forming a government. So if Duda says that that law and justice gets that first crack, there's nothing at all irregular about that, actually. The, I think the, the question will arise is can, how can they get any they, partners? Yeah. Yeah. How long will he give them? Right. Will he make it something? You know, will, will he let them have such a long time to try and form a government that he's seen as standing in the way of allowing civic coalition and their partners to form the government instead? And of course, there's no way law and justice would form a coalition with civic coalition. No, no I mean, so that would be uh, unheard of in. Uh, Polish political democratic culture, but that's a very young culture, right? Sure. Today, I don't. I, I think it's uh, especially considering how bitter the rhetoric was in the election. I just can't see it actually happening, right? Uh, at some point down the road, sure, it could happen. I mean, the, Germany does that all the time, right? That the Christian Democrats in Germany and the Social Democrats have had. I don't even know how many grand coalition governments there are. Sure. They're actually not all that grand, but that's what they're called. Right. But the Christian Democrats in Germany have not been as hard line as law and justice in Poland. No, they're not. To the Middle East. Joe Biden visited Tel Aviv right after an explosion at a hospital in Gaza. Biden was supposed to then go to Jordan and meet with the Palestinian president and Jordanian leadership. That part of his trip got called off because this explosion at this Gaza hospital has somehow raised the temperature in an already tempestuous sea of outrage regarding the Hamas-Israel war that began on October 7th with Hamas atrocities against Israeli civilians. Biden said publicly that the explosion at the hospital was not due to an Israeli military strike, that it was a misfired Gaza missile. Israelis deny that it was an airstrike, but Israeli military officials have lied about that before. Also, Hamas does misfire their missiles. That has happened before, and they lie about that. And as I heard in an interview uh, on The Intelligence, the Economist uh, podcast, they said at this point, it doesn't even really matter what the truth is, because uh, I think that's the takeaway actually. in the Middle East, the main street in any Middle Eastern country that isn't Israel believes Israel committed an atrocity against civilians in a hospital. Even if it's not true, that's what's happened. And this has taken the whole thing to a different temperature boil now. OK, yes, it has. Uh, Which is unthinkable all, considering where we were last week. First of all, if there was well, thing is, it's not. That's then that's where I have to take issue with this whole okay, I, story. Actually, sure. right? okay. it's not at all unthinkable. Uh, first of all, the misfired rocket, as far as I can tell, most intelligence agencies attribute it not to Hamas, but to Islamic Jihad, right? which me. is a yes. different. But, but from Gaza. That's right. Yeah. That is fired by one of the Palestinian militias inside Gaza. Thank you, you know, for correcting me on that. Because yeah, it's like um, it. Maybe we. Might I'm not sure the, that actually matters, but just yeah. just well, so we're getting the details correct. No, right? that, it does uh, matter, and it also we should understand there is kind of a junior varsity Islamic militant um, militia 
in yes Gaza. but I, at the same time i don't know how many hairs we should try and split here the fact is hamas itself is an islamist terrorist organization that is who they are uh and so whether or not it was their rocket that misfired apparently and and everyone concedes that everyone who says it wasn't an israeli airstrike says that it was a mistake right uh which i find slightly interesting not very interesting right but uh Palestinians say that Israelis targeted the hospital on purpose, right? Israelis say that Palestinians hit the hospital by accident. Right. right? So it's they're, not a Reichstag moment. Right. They're they're willing to concede that the other side might have just made a mistake. Right. Uh, now, again, I don't think that's all that important. It's noteworthy, but I think we can move on on from it very swiftly. Uh the I would make like to make a couple of points here is that first is that probably two to three hundred Palestinians in Gaza died last night uh, as a result of actual Israeli airstrikes. So whether or not Israel hit this particular hospital on this particular day shouldn't make any difference to any Palestinian or other Arab or anyone else who's angry about this. Right. Uh, in fact, Israel is killing civilians in Gaza. That is what's happening, and they know that they are, right? For instance, they will always say, and they do say, and I think it might actually be true, that they do their best to not target, is the word they always use, Palestinian civilians. Just as the United States, during our incursions into Iraq and Afghanistan, said the exact same thing. We don't intentionally target Civilians. civilians right and, yeah and even if that's true and i think it might be again right they're not doing it there's there's no way they could do a good enough job of that it's just not possible right it's for instance when we've spoken about the war in ukraine it's remarkable that that conflict resembles conflicts that occurred a hundred years ago where you have just these fronts of soldiers facing off against each other but even in ukraine civilians die in enormous numbers and any war that we've seen in our lifetimes and for a very long time before our lifetimes civilians get caught in it so the idea that these people who these civilians who got killed at the hospital or anywhere else uh, should take this to another level? Well, maybe it does, but that was going to happen anyway. Civilians were going to be killed anyway, and in fact, they are being killed every day. And so if it wasn't that, it would have just been something else. Uh, and so I think that, for instance, the ground incursion by Israel into Gaza hasn't even begun. We're almost two weeks into this war. They haven't even started that. Now, I'm sure there are reasons for why they haven't and and uh, you know they're making plans they i'm sure did not want to do it while joe biden was in israel or chancellor schultz of germany or rishi sunak of uh the, of great britain probably don't want to roll the tanks in while those guys are visiting right uh, but i'm sure there are other military considerations that are being weighed in their delay so far in launching the ground incursion but once that starts nobody's even going to be thinking about the hospital in Gaza. Right. It's going to get so much worse. And we already knew from the moment that Hamas 
busted into southern Israel. That as horrifying as that particular moment was, the whole the thing was going to get yeah. worse. And so now it's getting worse and we're surprised. No, I'm sorry. All right. A, a whole other level. Sure. But it was going to go to a whole other level anyway. I mean, do you still th- going to go to a whole sure. other level? So do you think Biden would have not been able to have that meeting with the Palestinian president and the Jordanian leadership the minute Hamas made their attack? Oh, I, I don't know. I mean, we'll never know the answer to that question. Sure. Uh, I would say, though, that uh, and I don't know if it was because of Joe Biden. Right. But originally. The Israelis were saying, we will allow humanitarian aid into Gaza only after you release the hostages. Mm. All of them, by the way. Uh, Israeli, foreign, whomever, right? Uh, Biden went to Israel, and after he left, suddenly aid will probably start going in pretty soon, and a couple of American hostages have already been freed. So Now, I'm not saying that Biden should take credit for that, the point I want to make is that there is movement on that particular uh, segment of this conflict. That's not anywhere near enough, but it's something. We should point out what you're referring to is the humanitarian kind of corridor that they're trying to establish in Gaza, right? Yes. Uh, and that's supposed to happen in the next, as we tape this Friday afternoon, next 24 to 48 hours, I understand. Yes, hopefully it will. I hope that, that there won't be any hang-up with that. There very well could be. Gaza has had no electricity or water over for the last two weeks. That's right. Or since this started. That's, what, 13 days, right? I mean, that's yes. it's a humanitarian disaster before you think about the first you know, artillery shell or whatever. Not only that, it's probably a war crime. All right. I'm not an international lawyer. Right. right? But there's a, there's a very compelling case to say that it is a war crime. I don't want to start, you know, having a legalistic argument about this. The point I, just, I want to make is that, as we said, we knew this was going to get worse. And it so far, it really is getting worse uh, by far on a net basis. Secretary of State Antony Blinken was also in Israel and his uh, speech with Netanyahu there seemed to kind of attempt to remind Israelis that they are a democracy, a liberal democracy, and that they're supposed to, I don't want to paraphrase his speech too much, but basically he said, look, we're a democracy. We're supposed to be the good guys, even when we're doing terrible things like prosecuting a war. He was essentially saying, you have to make an effort to not commit war crimes. You have to make an effort to not target civilians. That's what differentiates democracies in this world from the other guys. And I thought it was pretty bold of him to sit there and say that with Netanyahu right there. And uh, and Biden reiterated that when he visited and also in his speech from the Oval Office last night. I don't want to make too big a deal out of that. I think that, especially because Biden is a Democrat, right, uh, and he's, he'll be facing re-election next year, he has to say that to, to sort of appeal to the uh, people on his own side who are concerned about things like this. I can tell you, I mean, I've seen a great deal of reporting on this in the past few days that if Blinken and Biden said those things in order to try to, try to appeal to uh, public sentiment in the Arab and Muslim world, it's not working. Uh, and and uh, uh, but again, you have to at least try. Uh, but people just don't. And on the whole, I, I think considering who Joe Biden is, 
the generation he comes from, he's just going to be generally more on the side of Israel than he is on the side of the Palestinians. I mean, I think he's tried to be as even-handed as he can be, but I, again, I think someone a little younger than him might have done a better job of that. I don't want to find a whole lot of fault with him. Uh, I think he's doing a very, very good job in general with managing this whole situation, which is, of course, an enormously difficult task. Do we care that Putin and she got together in Beijing as part of a big gathering of like 140 countries regarding the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative? this week and they didn't condemn hamas do we care Is i that mean important i would have wished they did uh but i think it's probably too much to ask i think that that last year vladimir putin fully revealed himself for the person he actually is uh and that nobody can pretend he's anything different and so it really shouldn't surprise anybody uh and uh again it's disappointing but i don't I uh, think it really makes that big a difference in the grand scheme of things. Does the international rules-based order that we hear talked about so much following the end of the Second World War exist, where we now have a China that has committed you know, crimes against humanity against a Uyghur population for decades now, where we have Russia violating the territorial integrity of another sovereign nation, where we have maybe war crimes from Israel, right, that that will probably never be fully, they will never be fully held to account given the circumstances of, of you know, the context in which why they occurred. Are war crimes just like normalized now? Did we just enter into this new zone and and the, the old, as I said, rules-based order has just gone away and nobody's really noticed until now i think that it's a fair question and i i would hesitate to try to answer it myself the i'm not insane for asking that question right not at all for instance you know israel has been routinely uh accused of violating the international rules uh and the united states has seemed supremely reluctant to want to do anything about their violations of those rules the united states itself has not always adhered to uh, those same rules for that sure. matter. One thing I would say, though, is that uh, first is, John, you and I don't always follow every rule, right? And that's not what rules are for, right? Uh, is that that they should be universally adhered to, right? Is that there they are mechanisms to regulate behavior, uh, and so maybe that's splitting hairs I, I you know i could understand well i why think there's a difference see. between like stop sign you know make coming to a complete stop at a stop sign right i understand or maybe you don't put on your seatbelt until you get you know into second gear or whatever and a war crime right there are rules and then there yes. are rules that's so, right but and yeah. i i think that uh you know we would do well to ask ourselves these questions i should say though in uh the public utterances of Secretary Blinken and Joe Biden, just to name two, so far, and I could be mistaken about this, but I have not heard any of either of them use the phrase rules-based international order, right? They've talked about democracy, tyranny, uh, sovereignty, and things like this. They haven't gone so far as to talk about the actual rules of the order. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that's probably on purpose because they understand 
that there's a lot of rule breaking to go around and they don't want to get sucked into that. Uh, I don't think they have any choice. I think they, they're, you know, at, we're asking this question now. Many other people are asking the same question also as they ought to be. All right. We've got 60 seconds. What are you looking at for next week? Argentina. They're going to the polls this weekend. Uh, it could be a very consequential election for them. Uh, and Argentina is perennially economically troubled country, and that's the main issue in their election. So we'll see how that turns out, and we'll talk about that next week. All right. He's Sam Park. I'm John Ramey. Thanks for being with us. This has been Working for Crusoe. Questions, comments, suggestions, send them to johnramymedia at gmail.com. Have a good weekend, everybody. Thanks, folks.